0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the class. Um, I'm Caroline Kittle. I'm the newcomers and youth pastor at Blue Ocean Ann Arbor, and I'm going to be hosting the class. So first, I want to introduce the panel. And so we have, let me see, such a great panel. We have Vanessa Lyons, and Vanessa is a translocal member of Blue Ocean, um, a parent ally and advocate we have Caroline Nelson, another translocal leader in our community, coming from Vashon Island, um, and uh, Susan. We have Susan Schaefer. Susan used to be on the uh, children's ministry director and is multi-talented and gonna um, close us in a song and help facilitate. discussion. We also have um, Francis Bates and they are our Blue Ocean's new um, children's ministry director and just taking it away uh, in an amazing way. Um, We also have Diane Sonda who um, does the stuffed animal uh, youth minutes or kids minutes um, uh, during our church service and has been a long time um, involved with Blue Ocean. Um, We have Ken Wilson, our our co-pastor at Blue Ocean, and um, finally, uh, of course, David Gushy. Um, so honored to have you, David Gushy has been, Dr. Gushy has been um, just a friend of Blue Ocean from the very beginning and um, a true true friend and um are like the preeminent ethicist of our time. So um, it's just a, a real honor to have you on the panel today. So uh, a few details about Zoom. Um, if you want to participate in the chat, We would love to have uh, you uh, you participate in the chat. Um, Make sure that you click on everyone so that all the panelists and the attendees can see your comments. Um, We're also, we're using this special Q&A feature that's on Zoom and you might see that in the bottom panel of your screen. And that's for when we do the Q&A, the questions at the end, you can just put um, like an official question that you have and it'll come to the panelists and we can either individually write you back or we can write to the whole group, but um, it's a way for us to facilitate the questions. All right. So after this orientation, Caroline Nelson is going to share her story um, about the challenges of finding a church for an LGBTQ person. And then Ken is going to introduce our speaker, uh, David Gushy, who I guess I already sort of introduced, <laughs> um, but, but uh, Dr. Gushy will speak for about 40 minutes and then we'll have a Q&A. We're hoping to be done within about 80 minutes and you have an optional, we'll have an optional uh, extra 15 minutes. Oh, forget that part. Don't worry. All right. So um, we have attendees from uh, many States in the U S and actually seven other nations. Um, we've had people, including um, church groups that tune in. So whole groups in one screen. Um, we have many people who want to be religious allies for their LGBTQ plus family and friends, and we have several several clergy who are eager to learn an affirming theology rooted in scripture. We are so honored to have those of you who are identified as LGBTQ plus Christians, um, and we know that many many have been harmed and affected by the traditional teachings um, that, that they've caused. And so for, for that reason, when we do the, the question and answer via the chat, um, this is just not the place to advance the traditional teaching. So please don't defend it or try to advance it in the chat. It's just It's been given enough airtime already, um, and we just want to be respectful and honor all the participants that are, are here today. So we're featuring speakers in this class who have come to their affirming views within evangelicalism. Um, And now uh, a lot of us are really uh, functioning outside of evangelicalism as a result. Um, We acknowledge the limitation that so far um, we are having straight allies presenting in in this class. Um, And we want to stress that a truly affirming theology needs to pass the muster with LGBTQ plus Christians. So we encourage you to uh, use the resources provided by LGBTQ Christians um, in your learning curve. Um, Some resources have been suggested in our emails, um, the Reformation Project and Q Fellowship, as well as the Fellowship of Affirming Ministries are all recommended. It's also uh, very important to remember that um, the subject matter is is tender, um, especially for LGBTQ folks. Um, sometimes um, even reading like a portion of scripture um, that's been used to stigmatize or shame people, it can be so painful just to read those words or see those words. So we encourage you to practice good self-care and only participate as much as is helpful to you. Okay, so one last thing: the host um, for this class is Blue Ocean, and Blue Ocean Church is led by Emily Swan. Emily's married to Rachel and also the author of Solus Jesus, A Theology of Resistance. About a third of our congregants are a part of the LGBTQ community. Um, And so if you're in an area uh, where there aren't good affirming church options, um, you're very welcome to join us for our virtual church services every Sunday. Ken is our Zoom pastor, and we have a team, like I said, of translocal leaders from around the country and Canada. So if you want the Zoom invites to our Sunday services, um, just email diane at a2blue.org. That's the letter A, the number two, and the color blue.org. So let's get started. Um, we'd like to hear a story from Caroline Nelson from Vashon, Washington. So welcome, Caroline. It's great to have you here.
1: Well, thanks. Um, again, my name is Caroline Nelson. Uh, I live on Vashon Island which is um, a short ferry ride from Seattle. Um, I joined Blue Ocean Church Ann Arbor a little over a year ago uh, after searching locally for a church and a community. Uh, This was in the, the midst of the pandemic when most churches were online, making it super easy to explore and test things out. Uh, there's lots of churches on Vashon. Um, I tried uh, the Methodist, the Presbyterian, the Episcopal Church, and and a few others. And there was one that I tried that drew me in uh, more than the others. And it was an evangelical church, which uh, seemed to have mastered the uh, online church experience. They had uh, contemporary Christian music and cool graphics and slides to reinforce key points. And they had this really energetic and young pastor uh, named Luke, who I um, really enjoyed um, hearing. Um, I remember his first sermon, uh, which covered the importance of the Sabbath. And, and he cited many different uh, Bible verses uh, for someone who, who was a self dis Described, um, de- described workaholic, it really struck a chord. Uh, after the service, um, I decided to email Luke to thank him for the sermon message, um, but I also wanted to ask some questions about the church. Um, one of the, the most important questions, of course, was would they accept me as an openly queer person who was also in a long-term committed relationship with another woman? Um, His email back to me was really friendly and he assured me that his congregation welcomed all people, even LGBTQ people. Uh, But then I thought, um, well, I wasn't asking about being welcomed. I was asking about um, being accepted um, for who I was. Um, It took a bit of time for his next response. So I decided to do some of my own research and in sum, uh, what I found was that this church was actually part of the Evangelical Free Church of America. And they uh, claim to be uh, welcoming. Actually, they didn't claim, but I, through my research, uh, they, they're welcoming, but definitely not affirming. Uh, my, research, my research showed that, that uh, the EFCA, which is their acronym, does not allow women to hold leadership positions It does not allow same-sex marriage, of course, forbids all homosexual acts. But what I found um, most appalling was uh, it will not credential anyone who does not believe homosexual behavior is a sin. Um, I was like, incredible. Wow. this uh, I realized this church was definitely not uh, for me. So that sent me out. Um, on a new search uh, for a more inclusive, accepting, Jesus-centered church, um, leading me first to Ken Wilson and his letter to my congregation, and then to um, Blue Ocean Church, Ann Arbor. Uh, The first Sunday I joined uh, the church, uh, of which I am now a full member, I was moved to tears uh, by a sermon Ken gave, which included uh, this passage. I'm going to read it from Isaiah 43. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. Should you pass through water, I am with you, and through rivers, they shall not overwhelm you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. You you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I knew at this point that I had found what I was looking for, an inclusive church who loves Jesus and the scripture as much as I do and accepts everyone. Um, but I wanna finish my story with Luke and the Vashon uh, Evangelical Church. Uh, we continue to go back and forth a few more times. All, they were all friendly exchanges. Uh, The final email I got from Luke, though, included an 11-page document on the EFCA stance on homosexuality and same-sex marriage. And he told me that it basically summed up their church's beliefs well, which, of course, meant that I would never truly be accepted into the church as I was, or as I am, and I would always be an, an outsider in my community. Um, Don't get me wrong, I'm thankful for this experience with Luke and his evangelical church. I'm thankful because it helped to solidify what I do want for my spiritual life, even if it is from afar, which which is to be truly welcomed and accepted in a loving, supportive, and, and inclusive church community. Uh, Thanks for letting me share my story.
2: Thank you, Caroline. Look at all the great people that churches are losing these days um, um, because they're not worthy of them. So I get to introduce Dr. David Gushy now. I met Dr. Gushy at a retreat of scientists and evangelical leaders, I don't know, 2000-something, six. Uh, That group is hoping to form an alliance to address climate change in a time when there was a glimmer of hope for such a thing. Later, um, Dr. Gushy and I connected over LGBT inclusion. Uh, when my book was going to the publisher, which would have been late 2013, Dr. Gushy was the only evangelical scholar willing to endorse it. In fact, he wrote the foreword. I can still remember um, getting his foreword in, by email and, and literally crying when I was reading it. Others offered private support, which, of course, meant nothing. Then when Emily Swan and I were in the middle of a church crisis over LGBTQ in 2014, it was Dr. Gashi who called us, um, you know, uh, unbidden to pray for us, prayed for Emily and I over the phone. It was very sweet and helpful. Wrote a public letter in our defense at that time. Uh, naturally, the publication of his book, Changing Our Minds, which I think was preceded by a series of uh, articles, led to his losing all standing within in the evangelical world. And he had a lot of standing. He was arguably the preeminent evangelical ethicist at the time. So, you know, it's one thing to be a scholar of ethics, and it's quite another to show ethical courage. So I have the deepest respect for David Gushy. Since then, Dr. Gushy's work has only taken wings after changing our minds get the get the i think it's the third edition the complete edition of changing our minds he revised uh his seminal work kingdom ethics he wrote a memoir that was aptly named still christian uh, then a game changer after evangelicalism i'd highly recommend that book now just released he's uh come out with introducing christian ethics which i'm just now working my way through uh, what am I trying to say? You're going to love David Gushy. I do. Take it away, Dr. Gushy.
3: Thank you, Ken, and uh, thanks to the good folks at Blue Ocean. Thank you, uh, Caroline, for sharing your story so winsomely, but it's also so sad, isn't it, that such stories are, are, are everywhere. Ken, thank you for your friendship, and uh, we are shoulder to shoulder in this struggle for true acceptance and what I'm going to do today at uh, Blue Ocean's invitation is to uh, what essentially I'm going to do is to offer a basic summary of the backstory and then the argument of uh, changing our mind and it's that part of the talk the first part of the talk will be similar to talks that I have given ever since the book came out in late 2014 And then I'm going to kind of tell you the rest of the story, what happened after 2014 and 2015, and how my thinking has evolved, uh, how my experience of church life has also evolved. So I'm going to pull this up. I'm not going to share screen, but I'm going to pull up my talk, and I'm I'm going to work through it. So thank you all for joining us from all around the world, and I I hope and pray that, that this will be helpful. And I look forward to fielding uh, your questions a little bit later. Um, the book that I'm talking from is called Changing Our Mind. Um, the one with the uh, yellowy orange cover is the third edition. And my subtitle today is My Journey as a Christian Ethicist Toward Full LGBTQ Acceptance. I always like to start by saying, I am grateful. For the privilege of being invited into the conversation that any particular community is having, uh, so I, I, I'm I'm aware that there are multiple communities represented today. There's the Blue Ocean community in Michigan and uh, around the world now, online, but there's also I know uh, church communities gathering all over the place. It's hard to hard to picture though. I I did have a friend tell me that they were out in uh, I think it was Portland and. And this event was being advertised on a church sign in Portland. So if you are that Portland community, hello. It's good to be with you. I take seriously my responsibility as a Christian pastor and scholar. You know, the the teaching in James, where James says, let not many of you become teachers, for you will be judged with greater strictness. I take quite literally. I certainly did not flippantly change my mind on LGBTQ acceptance. And um, and I am fully a person who fully believes that at the end of my journey, I, I will meet Jesus and we will have a conversation about whether I was found faithful in my calling. I believe that I am following Jesus faithfully. Only Jesus will be the one to render that verdict. But what I say to you today, I genuinely and truly believe It is the product of serious study, and I have not had any reason, no compelling reason to reconsider my argument in changing our mind. If anything, I would go further today than I did in 2014. Let me give you a little bit of backstory. I began uh, as a newly minted PhD in Christian ethics in 1993. My teaching career began. Remember my first class had about 150 students. I was at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville. I was 31 years old and I offered my first ethics survey class. I uh, what you do in ethics survey classes is you, you know, here's a day on war and here's a day on economics and here's a day on bioethics and here's a day on sex. I now I now recognize that I began my teaching career you'll say that the conversation for the day on sexuality was not as well prepared as it should have been. and But but I think this is symptomatic. I adopted the position that was passed on to me by my tradition, by my most trusted mentors. Uh, I was not ready to, to listen to the dissenting voices that that were already out there and that had actually been all around me at Union Seminary in New York, where I did my PhD, but I wasn't ready. One reason I wasn't ready, of course, to listen to those voices was because if I had taken them seriously, uh, I would have not lasted a semester uh, as a professor at Southern Baptist Seminary. It was just not even conceivable that somebody would be um, accepting and affirming. And, and my Identity as an evangelical at that point was real, and it was important to me. And the idea of a traditionalist position on evangelicalism, I would describe it as constitutive of evangelicalism. In other words, it was definitive. It was non-negotiable. One thing to be aware of if you have found yourself hurt by churches or scholars, pastors or teachers, is that many in the evangelical world, or probably almost all, are so constrained in their thinking because they either know explicitly or implicitly that any deviation from the party line could cost them their jobs. Back in that time, the LGBTQ issue, so-called, was viewed only as a sexual ethics issue. The question of who was allowed to have sex with whom, the assumption was that this question was rather easily resolved by the most widely cited biblical passages. And for me, as for almost every straight person who taught about LGBTQ issues on that one day in class, or that one Sunday, um, my teaching, such as it was, was entirely uninformed by personal contact and conversation with LGBTQ people themselves. This is appalling to look back on, but it is also a very uh, much a common story for people uh, who started off where I did or who are there now. So let's say that's my story from 1993 to 2007, the first 14 years of my career. But beginning around 2007, some anomalies began to develop that, that were a threat, you might say, to the traditional view that I was teaching rather uh, blithely. One was that when I moved to Atlanta in 2007 to begin teaching uh, here at Mercer University, for the first time, I started meeting devout Christian, lesbian, gay, and bisexual people, trans uh, people, it was a little bit later, but as early as 2007, I was meeting uh, devoutly Christian, church-going, LGB people, you might say, in my new home church. And, And these were singles, couples, families, at that church, First Baptist Church of Decatur, I, was, I learned a lot about um, Christian uh, LGBTQ people, their, their diversity, their faith, but also their, their sorrows, uh, their suffering, their, how much rejection they had experienced um, almost always along the way, and how hard and brave it was to even venture a foot into church but they were there at my church. They were in my Sunday school class. They were joining the church as couples, as families. And also I should say that beginning around that same time, the seminary students that I was teaching at the McAfee School of Theology of Mercer University included some LGBTQ folks. Um, But I was seeing pretty early that even though they were welcome, this is in the cooperative Baptist fellowship world, kind of the moderate Baptist subculture, Even though they were welcome to study and pay tuition and uh, get degrees from my school, they were still at that time largely blocked from ordination and from uh, being called into ministry positions. Began to get more personal when my youngest sister, uh, Kate, came out as a lesbian at the age of 38. When Mitchell Gold, who wrote uh, the furniture guy who wrote a book called Crisis, called me out in that book. A by name, as a bystander to the suffering of LGBTQ people. Crisis is an interesting book. I recommend it. It's I, I don't see it on a lot of reading lists anymore. It should be there. It was an early entry in the storytelling of growing up in religious religiously conservative communities and being rejected uh, if one was LGBTQ+. Uh, but Mitchell Gold included me in his book, and he asked for a meeting. He flew to Atlanta, and we had dinner together, and we talked all about it. I wasn't ready to change my mind, but that meeting mattered. Um, I began to get some correspondence, painful correspondence from gay former students of mine, both uh, at the college and seminary level that I had taught, saying things like, you were a great and loving and caring teacher, but I was a closeted um, gay or lesbian person in your class and your teaching hurt me. I was also obviously like everybody by 2008, 9, 10, aware of the background cultural changes, greater and greater acceptance of LGBTQ people in society of uh, civil unions and and gay marriages being accepted and uh, made into law in a number of states. And I was listening to that cultural conversation, but aware that there there were two ways to interpret it. One was, as an advance for justice, the other was as a evidence of cultural decline or decadence, and um, and so I was mulling that over. Um, I read uh, Gabe Lyons and David Kinneman's book on Christian, and one of the things that was in that book was the data that the first thing that people thought about when they heard the word Christian or church in their survey was being anti-gay. So being Christian was equated with being anti-gay, like the number one trademark of the identity. This was disastrous and is, and is still probably largely true. Finally, you know, I felt I was a fairly senior Christian ethicist. By 2013, I was over 50 years old. I had tenure. um, I had security. I felt a sense of responsibility, a sense of divine calling, really, to tackle this issue in a serious way at last. I felt like, There are a lot of people who could do this, who maybe should do this, but I think I can do it, maybe be taken seriously by my fellow evangelicals and maybe still have a job at the end of the process. And so for my 19th book, I felt like now was the time. Overall, I would say that encountering and coming to love LGBTQ Christians and some ex-Christians during that 2007 to 2014 period Um, encountering them in their diversity, dignity, humanity, devotion to Christ, and their suffering was decisive in opening my mind and heart to some new directions. So in um, beginning in 2013, I attempted uh, a draft. Um, There's an unpublished version of Changing Our Mind that has never seen the light of day. And I don't even know if Ken has seen this, but I basically made scriptural arguments for three simple claims that all people are equal in the gospel, a humble equality of all as sinners in need of forgiveness and need of Christ's love, that all who accept the love of Christ and accept the gospel are and must be equal in the church. There can be no second-class Christians, and that, that it ought to be possible to Teach and to uh, embrace together a shared covenantal ethic in which everybody is called to the same standard of covenantal monogamy, regardless of sexual orientation. Uh, All kinds of biblical texts were reviewed in that manuscript, which I never did publish. But beginning in the summer of 2014, I began writing weekly columns in my kind of home blog place, the Baptist News Global. I still write for them. And so, week by week, I began unpacking, you know, kind of putting thoughts on paper about, about how to think about this issue. And it ended up being about 20 essays. So, the, by the fall of 2014, I had moved to a fully accepting position. And I want to, to tell you kind of how I got there. In the end, by the way, as, this, as these articles were developing in the fall and summer of 2014, They were getting a fair amount of attention, and a publisher, Front Edge, reached out and said, we think you should publish this as a book and should do it soon. So in an extraordinary turn of events, I mean, I think my last post was like October 2nd or something, and that book was out by November, and that was when all hell broke loose uh, because changing our mind was out in the world, and then it went on from there. Let me tell you about um, some of the major claims in the order in which they are unpacked in changing our mind. By the way, the book is called Changing Our Mind, singular, because my vain hope at the time was to appeal for the collective changing of the mind of the church, the church as a whole, not just individuals, but the church as a whole, especially the evangelical church. That's what I was uh, asking for. So here's, here's, you know, I, uh, maybe one reason the book works is it starts at the very, very beginning. It makes very modest claims at first. And so let me just step through it. First, I said, the church as a whole has a serious problem with what I called in, you know, quotation marks, the LGBT issue. And I said, the people who are affected, LGBTQ people themselves are hurting. Attempting to categorize the landscape, I said there's essentially three groups on this issue. Traditionalists who take you know, the old school view, avoiders who try their very best to never ever address this issue in any serious way, and the revisionists who are looking at or have already embraced a change of the traditional perspective. I said, avoiders are having a really hard time avoiding because it's becoming increasingly impossible not to take a stand. I said that the main issue is this, quote, Christian understandings of sexuality are being reevaluated due to evidence offered in the lives of those who do not fit the historic heterosexual norm together with associated research and mental health findings. In other words, there's a traditional position that is not holding together very well. It's being challenged. And it, we need to think about it. Then I said, the human population all around the world reveals a gender and sexual orientation minority of about 4 to 5%. Regardless of centuries of cultural and legal discrimination, stigma, and violence, this uh, minority exists. The primary evangelical approach of reparative therapy or the ex-gay movement, I said, has failed. By its own admission, it has failed. Sexual orientation change efforts are utterly rejected by mainstream mental health uh, experts, though Christians, especially conservative Christians, continue to go back to them. I said, we must acknowledge that Christians routinely have participated, not just in polite rejection, but fierce anti-gay rhetoric, activism and legislation, and worse, that the gay rights movement has won substantial gains in the U.S. So in light of that, some Christians who might once have done outright hate speech are now falling back to a merely theological or church-based resistance. But that this resistance, which is still there, continues to cause substantial negative consequences in terms of mental health, family, and spiritual well-being for LGBTQ people themselves and those who love them. I said, all decent Christian people need to hold the line for what I call mandatory minimums of decent treatment, accepting the existence of LGBTQ people, including LGBTQ Christians, ending all slurs and demagoguery and and bullying, ending any remaining criminalization, ending civil discrimination, like employment and housing discrimination, ending all violence or threats of violence, Ending the stigmatizing and treating with contempt of LGBTQ people, ending the blaming for cultural ills like, you know, 9 11 happens because of, you know, whatever. I said then that the churches today have six basic options when LGBTQ Christians show up. They can take an approach of, we don't ask any questions about that. Come on in. Or secondly, the, who are we to judge? We're all sinners here. Or third, we need to enter into dialogue for discernment. Or fourth, uh, we don't think this is not a sin, but we're going to be offering pastoral accommodation. Or fifth, we're going to try to some, some exclusionary tactic once we discover somebody is uh, in a like a LGBTQ relationship or even self-accepting. Or sixth, finally, some brave churches may be ready to practice what I call normative reconsideration to open the Bible again, to open their minds and hearts again, uh, or for the first time and uh, reconsider this issue altogether. I said, if, if you're not willing to do that, but uh, so I said, I use this image, if this is where you get off the bus, you're not, you're not open to the reconsideration. Can you at least hit the mandatory minimums? Can you at least not fall below that? you know, in large parts of the world and in large numbers of churches and families, those mandatory minimums are still not met. And uh, any international look reveals that, but it happens here too. But even if we do get to people to meet mandatory minimums when they stop doing demagoguery and um, hate speech and criminalization and open discrimination, there's still work to be done. I think the work to be done includes normative reconsideration, opening the conversation. So that is where I went next in the book, normative reconsideration. Let's go back to the Bible where I said these things. First, following, I think it was Christian Smith, the scholar, we have to acknowledge that Bible-based Christianity always has revealed what he called pervasive interpretive pluralism which means on every kind of issue, from salvation to speaking in tongues to war to gender roles to eschatology or theology of what happens at the end, Christians have read the Bible and come up with different conclusions. Pervasive interpretive pluralism, which means that the church cannot avoid a fallible, difficult, but necessary moral discernment process in which we open the scriptures together, we bring to the scriptures our heads and our hearts, are the text and various interpretations, and we ask under the Lordship of Christ for direction as to what we should do and believe and think and practice now. But that there has to be more than just a reciting of the traditionalist position, which involves essentially, as you all know, taking what I call the big six passages, there's not a large number of passages, and connecting the dots in a kind of a hop, skip, and jump from the Sodom and Gomorrah story to Leviticus uh, ban on male gay sex or whatever is happening there, which I know Ken talked about last time, to the vice lists in 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1, where words that are difficult to translate have sometimes been translated uh, homosexuals. And I think uh, Kathy Baldock is going to take that up. To uh, just taking Jesus' teaching on divorce in Matthew 19 and Mark 10, where he quotes Genesis 1 and 2 as somehow settling uh, the LGBTQ conversation. Then, of course, there's the move to Romans 1 with the harsh language there about uh, same-sex activity, possibly uh, the only reference whatsoever to female same-sex activity. I um, mean, I went through all of those and and talked about reading these passages in context, how different ways they can be interpreted. but i would I would I camped out longer, and I think my most specific or special contribution on the biblical work is Genesis one through three and the echoes of Genesis one through three in the rest of the Bible and in Christian tradition. I have concluded that it's the Fundamentally, it's for at least for a lot of people, it's the account of how God intended to or how God actually made the world that includes these, these uh, phrases that echo through through the centuries. God made them, male and female. The man shall, you know, leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. It, there's there's a, a moral vision of creation, the divine creation order. As having a clear gender binary and as having an unequivocal male-female pairing in sexuality for the purpose of procreation, by the way. That's part of the traditional teaching, too. That maleness and femaleness is, is not just for marriage and sex, but it's for procreation. And it's that mental picture. This is how God set up the world. And anybody who does not conform to that is willfully disobeying or disregarding the creation order. I think it's this picture that is the hardest for people to shake. And so I spent a fair amount of time there talking about what we can draw from Genesis one through three. The, those texts, primitive poetry mainly, offer lovely accounts of the worth and status of the human being, of The relational dimension of human existence, of the joy that we find when we find that helper or partner suitable for us, very important, suitable for us. But that Genesis one through three is not a science textbook. It doesn't account for uh, a lot of things. You have the older conversation about a, a young earth and a six day, 24 hours, you know, six, 24 hour day creation, but But the faith science question now extends to what about people who don't fit a gender binary? What about people who do not find, cannot find a suitable helper partner from the opposite sex? What is, what is to be made of them? So I said, I think this is a faith and science problem to some extent. Also I suggest that if we look forward to redemption in Christ of people as they are, Instead of looking back to a primeval narrative about a world that is gone by Genesis 3, that would help. And I think that, that is, I mean, I could deal with the other passages. But, but my conclusion on the biblical work is that you don't have to connect the biblical dots in the way that the, the traditionalists did. And choosing not to do so is not heresy. It's just a different interpretation of the evidence that is there. I also argued that we can retain a rigorous covenantal sexual ethic in which the idea is that sexuality is significant, it's not to be treated casually, but that it needs to be disciplined through covenant, that that is still, I think, a sturdy and good ethic, the best legacy of of the, the Bible's teaching on sexuality, but that it could it could and should be uh interpreted as applying to everyone, not just to straight people, and that this should be possible if we accept what should be obvious the existence of sexual orientation and gender diversity in the human family, ineradicable existence, and that people who are who have been othered for their gender identity and their sexual orientation need to stop being othered but need to be welcomed and included in the community on the same terms as everyone else. That is the fundamental claim there. But then I move on in the last quarter of the book for some broader reflections. And I say this, I say that we're in a moment of transformative encounters with people. And I think through people with God that transformative encounters and for me especially it was transformative encounters with lgbtq plus people that led me to a dramatic paradigm shift in the reading of scripture but that this is not new and it's in the bible itself uh just a couple of examples it happens in the emmaus road account in luke chapter 24 when after the crucifixion two heartbroken disciples are walking away from jerusalem And, and they're quite sure that they had been wrong. Jesus could not have been the Messiah. He was because Messiahs don't get crucified. And then they encounter Jesus and their encounter with him utterly transforms their vision. And if you notice that passage, they, they, then he opens the scripture for them and shows them a different way of reading it in which there can be a crucified Messiah. Um, But they would not have been able to read the scripture in that way if they had not encountered the risen Christ. Similarly, I'm saying, as we, you might say, encounter the crucified uh, LGBTQ people among us, and I don't think that's too strong a word, maybe we can have a paradigm shift and leap as well, and maybe we need to. In fact, we definitely need to. And then I also would go to Acts 10, really a lot in Acts, but especially in Acts 10, where at the beginning of that chapter, Peter is quite sure that he could never have a meal with a, with a um, Gentile. And by the end, you know, they're getting together and he's baptizing them because God has shown me not to call anyone unclean. Peter could not have gotten to that conclusion just by reading the Bible. It was when he encountered Cornelius and the gang that he met through them that the Bible could be read in a different way. And then I moved to church history, and and this has been an important It's it's, it's in the book. It's something I've been thinking a lot more since then. That really, throughout Christian history, when the church has gotten the teaching wrong, like on slavery or on sexism or segregation or anti Semitism, that the repudiation of, of bad teaching has never happened simply because somebody made a better argument from the Bible. It usually happens because somebody experiences the dignity devotion, suffering, and storytelling of previously victimized groups, that is groups previously victimized by the church and Christians, and says, oh, you know what? We need to reconsider this. And anti-Semitism is is a really good example of this. And I I added a chapter in the second and third edition of Changing Our Mind that's about that. My dissertation was about that. And I can talk authoritatively about the history of Christian anti-Semitism for 2,000 years which wasn't really repudiated by most Christians until after the Holocaust. So much of moral discernment involves how we perceive moral reality and what analogies we draw. And so I talk about in a chapter called a dual narrative tour that some see the accelerating movement toward full LGBTQ plus acceptance as evidence of cultural decline or sinful apostasy I now see it as a a spirit-led breakthrough in recognizing the universal sacred worth of all people and as a breakthrough in inclusivity in the church and in the reign of God. And that is my experience every time I worship with a truly inclusive community. It feels drenched by the Holy Spirit. I also go on to say towards the end of the book that My posture today after changing my mind, I think has greater coherence with the broadest themes, the most important themes of Christian ethics, as I have presented those themes in other books like Righteous Gentiles of the Holocaust and Kingdom Ethics and the Sacredness of Human Life. And these themes include solidarity with the oppressed, human dignity, compassion for the suffering, love, justice, the kingdom of God and its characteristics, the equal worth and sacred dignity of all. So at the end, I say, I've simply made a core decision morally to stand in solidarity with the LGBTQ part of the human family, with a special tenderness for the LGBTQ Christians and ex-Christians of whom there are millions. And I am determined to stand against any form of exclusion. And I feel a deep sense of repentance that this was ever really an issue that I had to change my mind to get there. Let me move toward concluding by telling you about what it's been like since then. After my book came out, I was inundated with correspondence from LGBTQ plus Christians and ex-Christians and their families. Letters, I mean, snail mail and and every way that, you know, uh, Facebook and every way that people communicate. And just, I mean hundreds of letters that that confirmed for me the the way I was seeing moral reality was right. I I was even more deeply aware of the ongoing harm inflicted on LGBTQ people in Christian settings. I I developed deeper contact with LGBTQ movement leaders, both Christian and secular. Certainly anybody who is an advocate for uh, LGBTQ rights knows that the single greatest threat to LGBTQ well-being in America and a lot of other places is conservative Christianity. I also was impressed by the work of the Family Acceptance Project that does research on um, basically how to get families to accept their own children and what happens when they don't. I developed a more critical edge towards the history of Christian moral failure. Failures of inclusion are a large part of our story. And so my idea that there's kind of like resistance Christianity and dominator Christianity, and we must stand with resistance Christianity, also took me into uh, a more of a resistance posture. You know, something I've been thinking about from the beginning of my career, that it's just not any old version of Christianity that we should embrace, but only versions that, that stand in solidarity with the oppressed. I'm aware that we need more and more aware that we need not just better exegesis, but but better, broader ways of, of knowing. Uh, we need a more psychologically and historically informed theology of what it means to be human, of human relationality, personality, and sexuality. That this kind of connecting the dots through Bible passages is not enough. We need a theology and an ethic. And so you might say this began uh, to move me towards a, a broader critique of the way that fundamentalists and evangelicals know things in the world or are taught to know things. You know, you you open up your Bible, maybe you go to a concordance, look up homosexuality or something, and you get your six verses and boom, that's everything you need to know. What an impoverished way of knowing and encountering reality. We need broader contact with deeper ways of knowing things and themes like human dignity and diversity, relationality, a broader understanding of human sin that it it often looks like our resistance to embracing the other, a a fresh look at Christ's ministry, which was so often about demonstrating God's love for all people into the teeth of the religious uh, tradition or versions of it. That human beings, all human beings, yearn for, or most at least, yearn for that suitable helper partner. And that when the church has taught people to cauterize their sexuality and relationality, it is intrinsically damaging. It needs to be ordered. But this cauterizing strategy is just disastrous. Uh, I teach about Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, every couple of years. And I began seeing themes in Bonhoeffer, like the individual's responsibility before God. Having an ethic focused on real persons in their concreteness, not ideal persons in abstractness. Um, Entering into the shame, loneliness, and suffering of marginalized people like Jesus did. Uh, An ethic of solidarity, of repentance, of bearing the cross, of seeking reconciliation. A willingness to be misunderstood um, and to pay a price. One of my favorite quotes from Bonhoeffer, he wrote to fellow conspirators at Christmas, 1942. And uh, I'll, I'll make, I or the Blue Ocean team will make all of these notes available. But Bonhoeffer said this, they were, he was in prison or well, he was in a conspiracy and he was about to be in prison. He said this, there remains an experience of incomparable value. We have for once learned to see the great events of world history from below, from the perspective of the outcast, the suspects, the maltreated, the powerless, the oppressed, the reviled, in short, from the perspective of those who suffer. The important thing is neither that bitterness nor envy should have gnawed at the heart during this time, that we should have come to look with new eyes at matters great and small, sorrow and joy, strength and weakness, that our perception of generosity, humanity, justice, and mercy should have become clearer, freer, less corruptible. Now listen to this. We have to learn that personal suffering is a more effective key, a more rewarding principle for exploring the world and thought and action than is personal good fortune. Finally, last few years, yes, Ken was right. The experience of evangelical rejection has been a stinging one for me. But in the end, what it has done is to deepen my sense of solidarity with LGBTQ people and their parents sometimes, and their allies. In other words, to stand in solidarity with those who have, who have also had stinging rejection. I've joined the community of ex or post evangelicals, not just in experience, but in rethinking much about how I was taught to think. My book, After Evangelicalism, hopefully charts a way forward for some post evangelicals. I am very clear now that only in a post-evangelical or non-evangelical space, does there appear to be full dignity and inclusion for LGBTQ people and many other marginalized ones. The issue is not only LGBTQ plus, the broader critique of American white evangelicalism is a profound one these days. Issues of political diversity, race, gender, and so on. So quite unexpectedly, I discovered that God had led me on a journey in which my effort from within an elite role in the US evangelical community, my effort to inform a better conversation had taken me right out of the evangelical community. First, I was kicked out. <laughs> Don't let the door hit you on the way out. But then I, I thought about it and I made my own argument as to why I and many others needed to leave. So I'm, I'm at peace with that, but I can say that it was a hard journey. But I like this post-evangelical space. I think we're in that space today and I'm glad to be in that space with you. But mainly what I wanna to say to LGBTQ plus people is thank you for your patience. Thank you for hanging in there with people like me, for hanging in there sometimes with church as a whole, certainly for hanging in there with Jesus. And I'll stop there. Thank you.
4: Thank you, David, Dr. Gushy. That was great. That was really informative and very um, inspiring. So now we're going to move on to the um, questions, answers. So we do have a few questions in our Q&A section. So the first one was, could you outline your thoughts on Romans?
3: Yeah, let me pull up my notes here. I think that what paul is doing in romans one is um offering a lacerating attack on uh pagan sinfulness as he understood it in the greco-roman world um uh he's doing that as part of this you know three-step you know those uh pagans are really awful sinners right we all agree right good and then in Romans 2, you know, we uh, Jews are also awful sinners, and so then he does some stuff in Romans 2 to make that case. And then in Romans 3, we all stand in need of the sacrificial death of Christ uh, on the cross. So for his rhetorical purposes, he he, um, he needs to paint, wants to paint as lurid a picture as possible of, of the, um, the sinfulness and paganism of the Greco-Roman world. That's what he's doing in Romans 1. Um I think he picks out um, same-sex activity for attack um, in part because of what was going on in, in the, the most uh, obscene parts of the Greco-Roman context, and I don't just mean sexually obscene, but um, but interpersonally obscene, um, the the domination of of the powerless, by the powerful um, the way that, Slaves, for example, could be and were exploited for sex, even at the age of children. As children, um, uh, the uh, human trafficking at that con- in that context, sexual dominance, um, physical harm to those who were being who were being raped by powerful men. Some of the uh, craziness in the Roman court uh, that obviously uh, Paul's readers in in Rome would would have heard about. Um, It was a context of sexual license and greed, of pederasty and prostitution, slavery, rape, trafficking and profiting from exploitive sex. And so I am at least confident that when Paul is is talking there, he is saying, look how, Absurd and obscene and licentious this context is, clearly, the pagans need Jesus. For for that to then be understood for 2,000 years to apply to um, loving, monogamous, covenantal relationships between people who don't have any of those characteristics is a disastrous interpretive move. So that's mainly what I say about Romans 1.
4: Susan, do you want to take the next Sure, one?
5: I can take the, um, the next question. Um, we had a little bit of um, sharing from a participant. Jack shared um, their desire to be an ally for their um, LGBTQ daughter um, and that they've been doing a lot of reading, um, many different books, and one of them was Embracing the Journey and um, there's an f- emphasis in that book on loving only and not judging. And um, in the question, which is rather long, um, so I'm, I'm not going. I'm going to paraphrase a little bit. Um, they they talk about um, a few verses, like Matthew 22, um, that the greatest command: love one another. Um, but also other verses that say it's not our job to judge. But then there's some other places that seem like maybe there is some, some things saying to judge, like in um, Corinthians 5 and Galatians 6. Um, so I think that there's this tension between, you know, can we, can we judge things to be good um, and, and how does that play into loving others and, um, and how can we do those things well?
3: Thank you, Susan. Um, and Jack, right? Jack Jack was our questioner. Um, embracing the Journey by Greg and Lynn McDonald, uh, who are also Atlantans um, and who I know, uh, and I'll actually be speaking at one of their events in June, is a strategy, especially to help parents, from conservative Christian subcultures to begin to move on the journey of acceptance. Um, and it is a journey and the, and the, the book and the, the, the work that they're doing is trying to take parents who have heard nothing but negative and to take them, you might say, you know, from, from a posture of anger or rejection or incomprehension to going on the journey with their children. And talking with Greg and Lynn, my understanding is that they're especially uh, going for, you might say, reachable evangelicals, right? Reachable evangelicals. But it's a pastoral strategy in that the idea is it is so tender and so sensitive and so urgent to help parents accept their own children that you do what you can to detox that environment as quickly as possible. Um, And I would say for any parents, that is so urgent. Your children need to know that they are loved by you and they always have an open door with you. Whether all the theological questions can be sorted out right away, maybe not, but the love is the bottom line. Um, As for judging, Yes and no. The thing, the thing about it is, moral discernment is a process in which you say, "This is this is good, better, best. This is not so clear or doubtful or bad." And we make such judgments all the time. We really cannot avoid making moral judgments, um, even in the. The, the last paragraph that I just articulated related to Romans 1, there are judgments being made all over the place there in Romans 1 and in me discussing Romans 1. Life is full of making moral judgments. Um, so it's ultimately not going to be enough on the issue of LGBTQ acceptance to just say, eh, I'm not going to be judgmental. It's a start. Ultimately, a judgment, um, a judgment needs to be made and the judgment is full acceptance. Um, And then in that sense, the judgment turns itself on the excluders. Like what I'm saying is I now judge my polite traditionalism to have been not good enough to have been wrong. That's a moral judgment, right? So I, I do think that there is space for a variety of strategies, reaching a variety of audiences, all of which hopefully move people in the right direction. Um, But people who are in on this journey need to be aware of the nuances of the approaches that different groups are taking.
4: Thank you. Uh, So Lauren asks, I'm just gonna read, The question says, um, Hi all, asked as a gay Christian who deeply cares about the topic, how do we argue against the counter that full human dignity could be bestowed without institutionally accepting a behavior, i.e. same-sex sexual behavior slash marriage, just like full acceptance of a past felon or murderer wouldn't include encouraging more of that same behavior
3: um this old old conversation is still out there right it's a category error um that's what i say well one thing even before that when the 14 year old kid gets kicked out because they think they say you know mom i think i might be a lesbian we are reminded that a lot of the rejection has nothing to do with sexual expression. It has to do with categorical rejection of types of human beings. So it is a grave mistake to reduce quote unquote, this issue to, to what, who can have sex with whom and to say that it's all about that. Fundamentally, this is a, um, a human dignity issue, but it also involves making a mental switch to to accepting, to thinking about this issue as more like left-handedness versus right-handedness or red hair versus brown hair or green eyes versus blue eyes um, and saying, oh yeah, um, green-eyed people are not better or worse than blue-eyed people, nor am I gonna tell green-eyed people rather than blue-eyed people that they're allowed to have a sexual relationship. It is part of the diversity of the human family. If you take as a given that diversity, then then the question gets reframed. Uh, Another move one can easily make would be to say, to do the, try the shoe on the other foot. Let's say that all straight people in the world were told, by the way, I accept you. You're just great. You're awesome. But you can never, ever have a sexual relationship, ever, that God could bless how would we feel about that we would not like it what does that mean perhaps um, a little bit of love the neighbor as the self would lead to at least the openness to reconsidering the issue
2: another question i wanted to throw out there uh, from one of our um possibly from one of our clergy people uh, we are going to have some optional sessions for clergy when uh, this class is done. So I just wanted to mention that. But it's a very common question. Dr. Gosh, many ministers wrestle in non affirming denominations with staying put to effect change or leaving to create new brave spaces. How did you know it was time to go? And how did you conjure up the bravery to make a change?
3: Thank you for that for the kind comment and question. Um, You know, My own denomination at, well, the the denomination that my church was affiliated with at that time, actually the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, has essentially decided on a posture of um, kind of laissez-faire, like it's not a denominational issue, churches can do what they want, which is is always the way Baptist polity used to be anyway. So I didn't really have to leave my denomination, though I will say, that I was serving as theologian in residence for the denomination when I wrote the book. And uh, suddenly after the book came out, my services were no longer required. So that was interesting. I don't know that that would happen today. That was eight years ago. I don't think it would. But, you know, I, I, and I think this is a God thing, as we used to say, maybe some of us still do say, I don't think I had any idea that my book in 2014 would lead to the swift, clear rejection of me from the evangelical community that it did. I think God may have shielded that possibility from my eyes so that I could write what I was called to write. Um, And so (laughs) you might say there was less bravery and more foolhardiness or ignorance or, or calling or something. But it is true that when the when the firestorm came, I at least did not do what a lot of people have done, which is to meekly say, I'm sorry, I repent, I go back to the tradition. And at least I didn't do that. And I think the reason I didn't do that was because because I was too bound in solidarity to the LGBTQ people who had been hurt by the traditional approach. As for whether to stay as a dissenting or change-oriented person in a non-affirming denomination. This is a, a judgment that everybody eventually has to make for themselves. Um, and there are various considerations. I do. It does feel to me like this issue is going to be more like um, pro versus anti-slavery in 1860 or 1850. Um, Equality for women in ministry in 1993, like denominations are splitting as they have in the past over LGBTQ inclusion. And um, in trying to hold together across this difference does not appear to be working very well. And so I can say that it may not be a lasting proposition to be able to stay within a denomination that, as a whole, takes a different position.
5: Um, maybe one more question, Ken. How 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 do you think we're doing?
2: I think we're uh, I think we're doing fine. Maybe a couple more questions.
5: Okay. Um. I I guess we can go with. Um, can you? um say more about a different way to interpret the creation narrative um that um that that is sometimes the hardest part to shake um because it is somewhat foundational um an alternate way of interpreting that
3: well um it helps to to think about um about other ways in which the creation narrative has been has been read that a lot of people have been able to slough off. You know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, On the first day, God did this. On the second day, God did that. On the third day, God did that. So obviously, that means the world was made in six 24-hour days. And if you count back, it looks like it was 6,000 years ago. Um, Young Earth six-day creationism is held by a fairly small sliver of Christians does that mean that the people who still read Genesis one and two but don't read it that way have abandoned the text, or have, or the significance or authority of the text, or have we chosen to read it as a text of a different type than that, as a, as a, a genre, uh, a, um, a story, offering a kind of a, a primal story of origin to communicate certain other kinds of truths, like? that this world belongs to God, that, that this world involves wrestling order out of chaos. Um, look at it, Look at the glorious diversity that God creates and blesses in Genesis 1. Um, look at how there's two different creation stories stitched together, Genesis 1 through 2.3 and then Genesis 2.4 through 2.25. Um, there's almost like it's, the text tries out two different stories of origin. What does that say about how we should think about it? Um, that the text was never intended to answer all of our scientific questions, but it, but it offers some lovely theological affirmations. Um, just as I need to supplement Genesis 1 with a good cosmology textbook or a good uh, geology textbook or, or big history um, to get a full picture of where the earth comes from, I need to supplement Genesis one and two with psychology and human sexuality textbooks and stories to get a good understanding of of, uh, how human diversity and sexuality actually works. Um, So that's what I'm saying. I think there's so much beauty there, especially about this is God's world. It's a broken world, but a beautiful world. We are relational beings. We seek partnership. Partnership goes wrong in the next chapter, but we still seek partnership. Um, we're broken. Um, God sees our brokenness and loves us anyway. God makes covenant with us. We make covenant with God and with each other to go forward to Genesis 1 through 11. Um, uh, it's a mess, but it's the mess that we're in. And we do our best to be, to be faithful and, and, and good amid that. There's a lot there. But a, oh, and how about this? How about how many people were taught that from Genesis two and three, the subordination of women, you know, woman is made second and, um, and woman is cursed in Genesis three. So therefore women are treacherous sinners who are subordinate to men. Many people love Genesis one through three and do not read it that way, uh, related to women and men and their relationships anymore. So maybe we can do the same in the area of sexuality.
4: Um, Oh, there's one more question on the Q&A that I actually would like to hear the answer to. And then um, Francis on our panel also has a question. So this question is, um, many cis hetero males are becoming the face of inclusion in the church. Is this a necessary path to add credence to the movement? Or is it another co-opting of the marginalized voices? and when will be the
3: time for that change? Um, I think that's a really important question. Uh, I think that in any um, struggle for justice, inclusion, dignity, the leaders of that struggle um, should fundamentally come from the oppressed communities. Um, Allies are invited. If we are invited, And welcomed then our voice has a place if not that's fine too you know um i have found gratefully that there are some settings that i i can get invited into and people like me can get invited into and maybe some people can hear can listen based on credentials or even um social location or gender or whatever but in the end um uh, I understand that I, I see my book as transitional. And in the end, this conversation will be and must be led uh, by LGBTQ plus people themselves. Thank you.
4: Francis. do you wanna go ahead? I think that question transitions really nicely into the one I was gonna ask.
0: So that was a good order of operations. Um, I wanna to, to thank you for the work that you're doing. I agree that I think that um, some information can be more easily digested for some folks, depending on who is presenting it. Um, but in also making sure that we're being intentional about centering voices from the community in our education, I wonder who, who are some folks or who are some places that you look up to who are part of the community that are doing work that you admire and that you're learning
4: from.
3: Um, I, I think it's indispensable for me to say again, that it, it, I, I would, nowhere on inclusion if it were not for the brave lgbtq plus people who spoke to me early early on um including mitchell gold and his book crisis and the 40 voices that were compiled there um got to know matthew vines really early after he wrote god and the gay Christian*, um and the reformation project uh, continues to do extraordinarily important work you know the parents i'm a parents and even grandparents age person now and the parents, you know, um, the, the uh, mama bears, the serendipity doodah moms, the, you know, I met the mother of Tyler Clemente way back in 2015 and got to know her and her story, um, you know, Greg and Lynn, uh, you know, um, Amber Cantorna is a friend of mine um, and her story uh, and, and her book Refocusing My Family, really, really important. Oh, and there's, you know, uh, uh, Jennifer Knapp, I I got to meet early on, and even before I wrote my book, very important. And there's so many others. uh, And there's scholars in in the world of Christian ethics, um, who in Christian theology, who were, you know, working um, towards inclusion from the 70s forward, you know, people like Virginia Mollongkot, you know, and, um, you know, Ralph Blair, and, you know, so there's a lot of a lot of forebears on this issue that goes back a long way. you want to talk about a lonely road, uh, you know, doing uh, inclusive work as an LGBTQ person from the 70s forward, that's the story right there. So those are some voices that I would name there's so many others.
4: Oh, Ken, I think you're muted.
2: Yeah, thanks so much, David. That was great. Um, we're going to close now. Um, I just wanted to mention that we were hoping to have an optional extra session, but we had a little communication uh, snafu, so we're not offering that this time. That was all in the email, in case you were wondering. And uh, Susan Schaefer is gonna close us with a song, and also uh, the recordings will be available for this. We'll send an email out to the group uh, once they're set up. And I believe Dr. Greshi will provide his notes That we can include um on the uh website at a2blue.org um for that for the uh, recording great okay so you'll get all the good quotes and all that stuff in uh a link to it in your email so take it away susan
5: thanks ken i also um wanted to remind everyone that the next session is going to be sunday april 24th um, featuring megan DeFranza author of Sex Difference in Christian Theology, Male, Female, and Intersex in the Image of God. Um, And that topic will be on reading scripture beyond the gender binary. Um, And we do have some people available um, for continued dialogue through email, um, Steve Gray and Susan King. Um, I don't have those emails um, available to put in the chat, but if if you are on here and you would like to Steve or Susan, and you would like to put your email in the chat. That would be great. Um, Ken um, is also available as well. Um, So I'm going to share a song with you now. It's called Be With You.
6: when you're feeling all alone and a storm rages inside then the spirit holds you close like a mother holds her child she cries peace peace be with you peace be in your troubled heart in your weary soul peace in your cluttered mind in your bones oh peace peace be with you peace be with you
1: Signing off now. Bye all.